0: Our guest on The Year That Made Me today is one of Australia's finest living poets, a poet whose life has led her to grapple with the subject of death and dying, both in poetry and in a royal commission. Sarah Holland-Batt published her first volume of poetry in 2008. She's won a shelf full of awards since then, most recently the 2023 Stella Prize for her book The Jaguar, a collection of poetry which is dedicated to her father who died of Parkinson's disease after living with the disease for two decades. Her father's experiences in aged care led Sarah to become an advocate for improving conditions in aged care facilities, which was an unexpected path for her. But then, as we'll hear, Sarah didn't start out intending to be a writer or a poet either. Uh, Sarah Holland-Batt is Professor of Creative Writing at QUT and I'm very pleased to say that she's here with me in the ABC studios in Mianjin, Brisbane. Sarah, welcome to The Year That Made Me. Thank
1: you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: It is great to have you. Now, Sarah, uh, you spent your early childhood on the Gold Coast, a place Perhaps not recognised as a breeding ground for future poets. Uh, Could you tell us about your early years and the family you grew up in?
1: Yeah. So the Gold Coast, I mean, it's not renowned as being a poetic. Well, it is now. It is is now. (laughs) It is now. You just need one. But um, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, I grew up as I'm an only child. I had mum and dad. Um, It was not a literary kind of uh, surrounding, really. Mm -hmm. You know, in the Gold Coast in those days, Was basically empty. You know, we had we lived next to an empty lot. I mean, in places that are now completely kind of populated. So it was it was a very different kind of place um, when I was a kid in the eighties. And you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of people around me who read books or were interested in music or literature. But I had my dad, and so dad dad was English. He you know loved literature. Grew up in the war and really valued the escape that books gave him as a kid, you know, in a tough time where he lost his dad when he was eight, um, you know, and he grew up with an alcoholic mother. So he grew up in in, in a really tough environment where literature was sort of the escape that showed him another life. And so when I was a kid, we had this enormous library. I mean, none of my friends had, you know, their parents didn't have libraries that I saw, but dad had so many books and he kind of venerated them. They were all um, you know, laminated with contact, and you know there were there was sort of these. Um, it was his prized possession, mm, I guess, his mm. library.
0: And obviously, that was transmitted to you at a at a very early age. So that so you had those early years on the Gold Coast. But then, at the age of twelve, you moved to live in America. Uh, that must be quite a culture shock. Uh, where did you move to? Why? And what was it like for you?
1: Yeah, so we moved to Colorado, to Denver, um, again, which was very different than it is today. I mean, you know, you say that about any place, but it was, it was, it's now, Denver is now quite sort of um, cosmopolitan and full of microbreweries. And when Mm. I was a teenager, it was not, it was not the chic Colorado that you see now. (laughs) But, um, you know, we moved there because dad got a job uh, in in his field, which was mining. He got a job over there and moved there. And it was an enormous culture shock because, I mean, you know, you grow up in Australia, um you know in the 80s and 90s and then moved to america we think the cultures are so similar but I think at that age, everything is all about the music you know, the books you've read, um, you know, and kids are so sort of tribal and I just didn't know any of the codes, you know, and so it takes a bit of a time to kind of work out what everyone's talking about, what everyone's wearing. All of those things were really quite different. Mm. And um, and then there was just the sort of, I suppose, that sense of being in another country and the landscape was different. I mean, Denver's totally landlocked. There's no ocean, um, you know, and I'd just grown up living on the beach yeah. effectively in 24, 24-hour, you know, Know, 365 day a year sunshine. And then it's, you know, snow. Very and, different. Very yeah, different. Yeah, so and different. I, I
0: gather it took a, a while to find the, the right school for you. Yeah, yeah.
1: So we did a kind of weird tour of um, a, a range of deeply unsuitable schools. So I went, <laughs> I went to a kind of um, American public school and was given, you know, you're always assigned a kid to show you around. And I was basically assigned to this girl who was kind of a gangbanger. And uh, I just remember being completely alarmed and just thinking, I cannot not go me. to school here. This is not for me. And And then um, in America, they have these sort of quite strange, small private schools called charter schools, which are sort of effectively lawless and they can become sort of passion projects for weirdos who become the (laughs) principals of these places. And so I was taken to one of those and um, could not wait to leave and then finally landed at quite a good school. Um, And I was very lucky at that school to have an amazing English teacher, you know, who just loved poetry, loved literature. So I landed in the right place. But yeah, I mean, the, the educational landscape in America is a bit more diverse than it is here and there's some there's some wacky options out there. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, but obviously, this this teacher, did he kindle your serious interest in poetry?
1: Totally. So, he was a strange cat. I mean, th- he ran 100-mile marathons. He was a sort of weird weird character, Chip, but I loved him so much. And he'd done a master's degree on T.S. Eliot. And so, he didn't give us easy poetry. You know, I think mm. often when we think about how to teach poetry in high schools, we think, oh, we've got to give kids stuff that's relatable and it's got to relate directly to their lives. And instead, Chip was saying, you know, have a read of The Wasteland, have a read of this, have a read of Ezra Pound. And
0: that was obviously working for you. How was it going down with the rest of the class?
1: I mean, actually- actually people could, he was a cool guy. So I think, you know, you can never underestimate how much kids will go along if they think their teacher is cool. <laughs> so people kind of went along with it probably more than they would with another teacher because there was just a lot of affection for him. He was kind of, you know, eccentric and amazing. Um, but yeah, I was that kid who, where he'd drop a name in class, so I'd then go, I'll go and read that. And he, he'd almost drop things out like a challenge. And he'd say, you know, people say James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake is an unreadable novel. So immediately I went out and bought a copy on the weekend and then discovered it was indeed unreadable. <laughs> <laughs> um but you know it was it was wonderful to have a teacher who taught you know to his level I mean he was just sort of sharing yeah. his passion as he saw it and and brought me along the way
0: But as you saw your future at that point you weren't thinking in terms of words you were thinking about music is that right
1: Yeah that's right so I mean I I um was studying classical piano and love music and that was always my first love and Um, in high school, I was spending a lot of time, you know, playing, practicing, um, you know, driving huge distances to go and see various teachers and, you know, performing competitions and stuff. And I think At some point, I recognised there was a relationship between those two things, between the music, the sense of music. I mean, we think of music as emotional, and of course it is, but it's also mathematical. It's also about rhythm and emphasis, Mm. and poetry draws on so much of that same material. And, you know, as I started to read T.S. Eliot, I felt the same part of my brain that enjoyed music was finding pleasure in those lines that I didn't fully understand. It's like a song. I mean, you never understand a song fully on the first listen, but you get that sense of pleasure and, and kind of joy from the way it moves. And I felt that with poetry. And so, yeah, I was playing, playing classical piano and intending to kind of do that as a career, but then also started writing poems on the side and, and loving poetry.
0: And uh, that love obviously blossomed, uh, but blossomed back in Australia. We're speaking with Sarah Holland-Batt on The Year That Made Me. Sarah, when did you come back to Australia?
1: So I came back in the year 2000. And, and
0: that's the year you've chosen as the year that made you because, well, a lot of things happened that year. Tell us, give us a little portrait of who you were at the beginning of that year and what happened during the turn of the millennium.
1: Yeah. So I was fully America, Americanized by this point. I had picked up a Coloradan accent, you know, because I was so sick of being bullied about Steve, Steve Irwin, who was the <laughs> only Australian that people had heard of in America in the late 90s. And so I was basically, you know, effectively like an American teenager, sounded American, felt. American was intending to go to college over there. Then dad uh, was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and the American healthcare and insurance system being what it was, Mm. the family took the decision to move home so that he could, you know, access, you know, healthcare in Australia. And so that was a big shift for me because I think, you know, I'd made American friends. I felt really at home um, and I had a sort of path that I thought I was going to follow. And then I came home and everything felt incredibly different. You know, I Mm. felt I, I, you know, I didn't have any friends. I had a couple of friends that I'd kept, you know, from when I was 12, but it's a long time. It's your key kind of years. And so it was just a total reset at the same time that my dad had been diagnosed with, you know, a really quite devastating illness because he was a brilliant man and prized his brain and his intellect. And so, you know, when you're told you've got a neurodegenerative disease, it's a huge shift. And so, you know, mum and dad were I suppose, dealing with that news and kind of processing it as best as they could. And I came home and had to sort of start university in a different system. I didn't have an OP, you know, all of those things that you think, you know, you move, want to move as seamlessly as you can into uni. Everything was kind of shifting. And
0: you were writing poetry seriously by this time?
1: Yeah, I think I think I was writing it quite seriously. I, st- I had, had that sort of moment where I still really wanted to be a pianist, but I recognised that a lot of the work and, and just the kind of things I'd put in, in a America would be difficult to translate here, and realistically, I mean, let's face it. There's sort of three or four living pianists who make an amazing, amazing career. So you out of decided
0: it. poetry instead.
1: Probably, yeah, poetry. I just thought I'd go for something that it's, you know, it's we... the more sensible career choice. Yeah, I decided to follow the money to poetry. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I enrolled in university and did a literature degree. Really loved it. Dropped out of a law degree, as most good writers do. You know, um, some of them managed to finish it. I, I did sort of half of it and dropped out, and then you know just. Kept going and was really lucky. Met some really great teachers at university. Started to read Australian poetry, which was part of a shift too, because all of the poets that I'd loved in high school were American. You know, Mm. fell in love with poets like Eliot, Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman. So I had to get my head around, you know, it was sort of a moment of reckoning with the fact that I was Australian coming back. Yeah,
0: fantastic. And you've described the process of writing poetry as fishing for lightning, and that's the title of your first anthology. why is poetry fishing for lightning?
1: Yeah, I think it is it is about finding the right words for experiences that often are quite common and that's the sort of balance that you've got to get right in a poem, I think. It's that we have these enormous life experiences like grief or love or loss or whatever they are um, and we also have very common languages for them among, you know, among ourselves, often which are cliche and don't rise above the level of kind of how we would talk about them in conversation and mm. I think... In poetry, you are trying to find the the most charged particular language for your particular personal experience that then hopefully will resonate outward. And it's sort of, you know, I, I come back to songwriting as well. It's the same thing in a song. You can be made to feel nostalgic for someone else's childhood or for someone else's experiences or loss. Mm, mm. And it's that, that's the kind of work of poetry. So you are in a sense fishing for the, for the unusual thing, um, that will, that will, I suppose, give you the language for, for you know, your experience. Uh,
0: your father died in 2020, so that's 20 years of dealing with the disease. Um, your third volume of poems is called The Jaguar, and as I said, it's dedicated to your father, and it includes poems that engage in a really powerful and beautiful way with his illness and your grief and, and with death. I wonder if, if, Sarah, could you just read a little bit from the Jaguar for us, as we and then we'll go on to discuss some of the, uh, the harrowing experiences behind that. But uh, let's, let's hear some poetry.
1: Sure. So this is a poem called The Gift. In the garden, my father sits in his wheelchair, garlanded by summer hibiscus, like a saint in a seventeenth-century cartouche. A flowering wreath buzzes around his head, passionate red. He holds the gift of death in his lap, small, oblong, wrapped in black. He has been waiting, seventeen years, to open it, and is impatient. When I ask how he is, my father cries. His crying comes as a visitation the body squeezing tears from his ducts tenderly, as a nurse measuring drops of calamine from an amber bottle, as a teen at the car wash wringing a chamois of suds. It is a kind of miracle to see my father weeping this freely, weeping for what is owed him. How are you, I ask again, because his answer depends on an instant's microclimate. His moods bloom and retreat like an anemone, as the cold currents whirl around him, crying one minute, sedate the next. But today my father is disconsolate. I'm having a bad day, he says and tries again. I'm having a bad year. I'm having a bad decade. I hate myself for noticing his poetry, the triplet that should not be beautiful to my ear but is. Day Year, decade, scale of awful economy. I want to give him his present, but it is not mine to give. We sit, as if mother and son on Christmas Eve, waiting for midnight to tick over, anticipating the moment we can open his present together. First my father holding it up to his ear and shaking it, then me helping him peel back the paper, the weight of his death knocking. And once the box is unwrapped, it will be mine. I will carry the gift of his death endlessly. Every day I will know it opening in me.
0: That's Sarah Holland Batt reading from The Jaguar and reading from writing about what must have just been such a long and traumatic experience... Uh, Was it inevitable that you would write about those experiences in poetry or was that something you had to grapple with as well?
1: It was tough, actually, because I hadn't read many poems about, you know, ageing, death, cognitive decline. They're not the typical subjects that we think of when we think of poetry. I mean, maybe we think of... Nor for a young poet. Yeah, nor for a young poet. And, you know, so I actually kept the fact that Dad had Parkinson's to myself for almost a decade. I don't think I even really told any friends because it was just um, a sort of experience that I had to take my time to Mm. sort of grapple with. Someone that you love... Changing, you know initially in slow ways and then in quite sort of momentous ways. And you know Dad's personality changed along with you know his cognition, his his movement, and stuff like that. Um and so it took me a really long time to think about how to turn it into poetry because, you know, often the most intense experiences we have, they don't make for great poems when you try and write them immediately. I mean, this is the genre of teenage poetry. It's never great, you know, when you just sort of throw it all down on the page. Mm. And so I had to sort of think about how to do it in a way that I felt honoured dad and wasn't sort of cruel because it is a cruel disease, Parkinson's. It's a terrible thing to kind of witness. And so trying to find a language for that, that took a long time. And then I also thought that the, that no one might want to read these poems because they are about a topic that's confronting. It's mm. kind of a taboo. We don't like thinking about getting old. We don't like thinking about ageing. We don't like accepting that People like us, you know, who prize our brains might one day, you know, have a cognitive disease. Um, And so I just thought no one might even want to read these poems, but I felt compelled ultimately to write them.
0: And then you felt compelled also to write about and to speak about uh, those experiences in a different way as an advocate for um, people in aged care, because unfortunately your father had some terrible experiences there. Was that harder to be a public advocate as not a poet?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was very hard. I mean, I remember really the night before testifying at the Royal Commission just thinking, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? Um, but, you know, it was one of those things where if we don't address these failures, we're destined to repeat them. And so Dad had, Dad had terrible experiences um, and I thought uh, I was in a position where I was able to speak about them. It is important and I, I'm hopeful that there will be change. I mean, we've had a Royal Commission, we've had recommendations, there is legislation in the works um, and so, you know, it's it's not easy but it is important, I think, when you've got the capacity to do that to make that contribution.
0: Well, I can highly recommend reading your submission to the Royal Commission but if you've got to choose between one or the other then perhaps go for uh, one of the poetry yeah. books um, and the Jaguar is the latest collection of really beautiful poetry. Sarah, it's been... Delightful speaking with you on The Year That Made Me. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. And we always finish with a piece of music. What should we go out with and why?
1: Um, I'd love to go out with Tulip by Augie March, which is a band that you know brought out its first album that year when I moved back to Australia. Um, it's a beautiful, lush kind of song set as a road trip, which I used to do with my dad a lot. And I just love the lyricism. And it was part of what made me feel Australian again, finding a band. Um, you know, Glenn Richards sings in an Australian accent, which was a big thing. Um, and so it's a beautiful song and one that I've listened to a lot over the years.
0: Here it is, Tulip by Augie March. Sarah, thanks. I Pleasure. is just a taste of Augie March Tulip, the song chosen by our guest on The Year That Made Me, Sarah Holland-Batt, who's now professor of creative writing at QUT and her latest collection is the Jaguar, winner of the 2023 Stella Prize. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.